the margin always identifies where we are in any given service. So at the very top of the, uh, the margin, well, down the margin, let's say there, there are three little subheadings there, but only one is bold, right? You see that? That third one that's bold, what does it say? Chetzi, Kadesh, Kadosh. Chetzi, Chetzi, from the word Chetzi, which is half. Chetzi, Kadesh. A half a Kaddish prayer. Half of a Kaddish. And I told you, there's full Kaddish, uh, half Kaddish, mourner's Kaddish, our teacher's Kaddish, the longest one is the teacher's Kaddish, various different versions of the Kaddish prayer. So it's telling you this one's the Chatsi Kaddish, the half Kaddish, is just one of those graphics in the service. It's a service break. It also will tell you there in, um, in that sidebar, it's to, give you, it's to give people a kind of a reference point. Where are we within the service? Because there's so many Chatsi Kaddish. So it tells you, and you can look on the English side, but we're also reading it. It's the section with the Ashray, which is a common prayer, and the Psalm 145, which is, you know, just a, a, we're, in a, we're in a section of praise. And we've got the Chatsi Kaddish, we're now moving into something. I don't know what we're moving into, but the next page would tell you. Ah, we're moving into the Amidah. Makes sense. From praise into holy, silent, standing prayer, communal prayer, the Amidah. Okay, that was just like for reference. Yeah? Why are some prayers in Aramaic? Yeah, because they're so old and they started that way, they were written that way, and it's so related to Hebrew. It is basic. The roots are the same. Um, there are just like it's nuance of difference. So you, so a Hebrew, a, a Hebrew speaker, yes, would recognize the Hebrew and the Aramaic. We don't want to change it and update it because sort of it's been like that for so long. So Orthodox, conservative, and Reformed Yisker would be in Aramaic. The Not the whole Yisker. So the the Kaddish, the, the Kaddish, Kaddish will be in Aramaic, and all, even in the uh, Yemenite like Sephardic prayer books. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. It's really just a, when the prayer services were constructed, they were constructed that way. And they put in, you know, chunks of Torah, which Torah would be the Shema, the, the whole Shema section, you know, with the Bahat, all of that. The Vishamru on the Friday night service, the Vishamru, that's from Torah. So they put in these chunks of Torah within the prayer book. They put in, uh, you know, various rabbinic prayers. They put in some Aramaic prayers that were part of way, way back. They always had them in their when they prayed, when they were called to pray, but they didn't have a constructed prayer book then. So when they constructed it, they made it that way. Yeah. Anything else come up so far? Okay, so let's look at, and as I told you last week, you're going to find all these things in various parts of the prayer book because they're written over and over and over again. We have Shabbat afternoon, Shabbat morning, Shabbat evening, weekday morning, weekday evening, festival morning, evening throughout this prayer book. So I could really take you to, to any page, but I'm going to say 264. You might find the same prayer on many, many other pages, as I've said. But I'm going to for, let's be all together on 264. So the heading at the top, try to read that big, bold heading at the top without using the English if you can, and see what you come up with. First word, let's go for it. 
Shema. Yeah, Shema. But we look at the page, and you can already see we don't have the Shema Yisrael. What are we talking about? The Shema is not on this page. But keep going. Shema. Give me the next syllable, the first syllable of the next word. Yeah, ooh. Ooh meaning and. Remember, v means and? Even when that v, when the has a dot in it, the ooh version of it, it still means and. So Shema and something, yeah? Actually, that was my question for the last time. Correct. Whenever the vowel, you're going to go way back in your, in your workbook. This is a, tr a tough one, but we, yeah, way back, maybe yeah. chapter three or something. Okay. They introduced you to the ooh and the, eventually the o, oh, but I think it was the ooh that was first. Maybe it was the O. I don't know. Yeah. No, it was the O. Oh. Oh. Being that vav, that stick that holds up a dot, or that stick that contains a dot in the middle, yeah. is just being a stick that holds up a dot. And so it was O or U. And only later, they brought in, the, they taught that the vav actually is a distinct letter. So, the vav is a distinct role in all of the alphabet. It can be either a vowel or a letter, but not, well, it could be both. But I'll, let's leave that for a second. Whoa. So, if you see a dot on the top of it, it's a vowel. If you see a dot in the middle of it, it's a vowel. If you see it without a dot on top or in the middle, it's a va. It's a v, a v sound, v. The only reason that it could be, uh, I really need my, I don't have this anywhere in right. Okay, let me just show you something. We might have to flip pages for a second. When we did the Morris had actually had ooh as well, but that was also in the Yeah, there's a lot of ooh or v, meaning and. It will either start with ooh or v, depending on the grammatical appropriateness. Excuse me? Yeah, it could have both. If, as a, I'm, when I talk about the and, and only comes at the beginning. So as a prefix, it will be v, va, or ooh. It could be O. It would rarely be. But that Vav at the beginning usually stands for and. Anyone else? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take you away from the page I told you to go to. Just looking for one second. Um, oh, oh, I found it. I'm sure it's all over the place, but I'm just looking for it. Okay. Okay. Look at page 28. Don't worry about saving your place. We can go back to it later. Look at page 28. And I'm taking you to this page because I can see that there's a bunch of blessings on this page. As I just said, they start with root potato nice. We're in blessings. The first one at the top, it starts with, I did it for you, but I know you can do it. Root potato nice. What comes next? Keep going. We're at the first part on page 28. What comes next? Elohenu 
Asher Kiddushanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu That made us holy, Kiddushanu B'mitzvotav in his commandments and Tzivanu and commanded us something. Now we know this is indeed a commandment. Clearly. Those four words tell you that. And then it says, and you don't have to, this is not a common blessing for you, so I'll read it for you. Lehaniach tefillin. To wear or, or wind, in fact, tefillin, because you wind them around your arm when you, when you put them on. Most people in the synagogue don't wear tefillin. So um, I just picked a random blessing that is a commandment. That is all I was looking for. Now I'll tell you why. Look at the word b'mitzvotav. Mitzvah, try to find it yourself. The mitzvotav. Asher kitchanu mitzvotav. Can anyone not find it? I will tell you where it is. You found it. Okay. Be, meaning in. Mitzvot. You know what that word is. What is it? Mitzvot. Commandments. Commandments. Plural. Mitzvah. Commandment. Mitzvot. Plural. Commandments. Mitzvotav is just an ending of ownership. His commandments. So, the in mitzvot, commandments of him, his, mitzvotav. Why am I looking at that word? Because, Jackie pointed out, the vav, which contains a dot on the top, should be a vowel, right? So, look at the word carefully and follow with me. B, mitzvotav, or b'mitzvotav. Now you know it's bemitz votav, but why is it not bemitz otav? Since it's a vav, the dot on the top. Why is it not bemitz otav? The dot isn't directly on top, though. Well, we can. Okay, good one. I mean, if if you look, like the vav has actually the. If it's an o sound, it's a little off center. I accept that, but there's more than that. Is it because of you can't start a syllable with a vowel. Because you cannot start a syllable with a vowel, you cannot do that. And let's look at the b. It's a sil- it's a it's a consonant with a vowel with a shvah underneath. Right. Syllable. Me is a, sil- is a consonant with a vowel underneath me. But you look ahead and we've got t- the tzadi with a yes. vowel underneath. Right. It's the shva, so we blend it. Now we've got b meets. Right? Everybody agree? Okay. The meets, I cannot start with O. Therefore, in that case, and there will be other words, so you can't just consider where the dot, it's very hard to scrutinize if the dot's on top or not, as you're reading quickly, but you will soon learn that you can't start without, with a vowel sound, unless it's the and at the beginning of a word. You can't start with a vowel, so you're going to have to make that vowel. You can assume that if it's in the front, it's and, but you won't be 100% right. There are a few words that start with above. There are a few words, but they're not enough for you to worry about. I think as a rule of thumb, assume that when you see a vav at the beginning, it's uh, the word and. Any vav. V, v, u, o, whatever. Okay, so we've answered that. Let's go back to where we were. I think it was 264. So in that big heading on, on 264, we have Shema, which you know is the Shema, the U, which is and, and then try to read the next word. Well, the continuation of U. You can do it syllable by syllable. 
Okay, good. I heard the next, I'm going to just take it syllable by syllable. So we have oo, veer, that was good there. I know you did the whole thing, but I want to go syllable by syllable. Oo, veer. Cho, oo, veer, cho, te, I heard it. Ha. Good. Te, ha. The yud after te, the yud doesn't change anything. Oo, veer, cho, te, ha. Before I tell you what it means, read, look at that word, the same word we're on, and tell me what root you see in there. I know you've got lots to choose from, but it's not that hard. What root do you see? A root we've been talking lots about. Baruch. Yes. The very next three letters, which are your sort of go-to default letters, because we know we've got prefixes and suffixes, and we don't want to get caught up in prefixes and suffixes, and I've already told you that the prefix is an, and now you know it. So let's look right after an. It's got to be the, probably there's the root right there. And sure enough, you've got a bet, resh, chaf, which again and again and again we've seen bet, resh, chaf, the same root that you have in Baruch. So what does it mean? It's something to do with... Blessings, something to do with blessing. So think about that. Shema and something to do with blessings. What do you think it is? Shema and her blessings. The blessings that go with the Shema. That's all we're talking about. You don't have to guess too hard to go Shema and blessings. Really, you're done. The Shema and the blessings that go with the Shema. So we're on the beginning of this section called Shema Uvirchateha, the Shema and her blessings, but we haven't yet seen the Shema. Like, you can guess that pretty soon, within a couple of page turns, we'll be at the Shema. Why do we not just launch into the Shema? It's a holy, integral prayer to, our, to the Jewish people, so we warm up. We get people ready to pray, and soon enough, we'll be at that beautiful Shema. So here we go. We're ready to pray. We're, we're about to start praying. Yeah? Um, could you say, we're you could say uvir chotecha, but then it would be and your blessings. Uvir chotecha are her blessings. They're referring to the Shema as a as a female, because everything has gender. Prayer is tefillah. is a, a female gendered word. So the Shema is a female gendered thing. So therefore, it's uvir chotecha. Did everyone understand that question? If it was uvir chotecha, it would be and your blessings. I might say, Virchotecha, your blessings are upon you, or something. Virchotecha. Right. Good. So, the very next thing right below is what? Let's read it in Hebrew. Don't look at the English, just the Hebrew. If you're reading in English, don't read it out loud. <laughs> Hebrew. Yes, I heard it. Bar. So, it looks like bar Baruch, it's the same root. But they flip the bop. It's at the end. It's bar hu. Bar hu. Keep going. Et. Nice. Next word. You know it. Love it. Bar hu et Adonai. Yeah, you can guess it. You have no problem. I have no problem with you guessing what you logically and when you see it and you're guessing it and see so for you, Joe, to speak to you directly, I know you've had some struggle with it, you haven't been here now. 
So look at that word and see, oh, I know it's Hamburah. So why is it Hamburah? Look at the letters and it'll be like Baruch Adonai. You'll just start to recognize it. Because you're going to see Baruch et Adonai Hamaborach over and over and over and over again. I'm about to prove to you why. Baruch et Adonai Hamaborach is known as, in English, what do we call it? Anybody know? The call to worship. The call to worship. To pray. Rabbi Dan will almost every Friday or Saturday say, page 264 will rise for the call to prayer. That is it. This is the traditional, I'm just trying to get over him. He's just fighting me. Yeah, he's <laughs> really vocal. He was. Bye. We're ready to pray. Okay. <laughs> back in the market days, Julia, however many thousands of years ago, back in market days, there was no constructed prayer book. Somebody in the market, Jewish, noticed the sun going down or the sun coming up and would say, oh, I need to call my brethren to prayer. We need to call each other. I, I've noticed, right? The time is upon. They would call it out now. Did they use that tune? I don't think so. But they probably used those words. What does it literally mean? Baruch you know it's from blessing. Blessed et Adonai is God. Hamevorach. That vorach is in there too, that blessed mm -hmm. word. The blessed one. The one who is blessed. Hamevorach. Blessed is God who is blessed. Uh, who do they say? They write it in English. Praise Adonai to whom praise is due forever. There's no word of praise in that sentence. And yet it's a literal translation. Okay? But the word of praise is not, not the Yishadabach and not the Hallel. But therefore it's a totally legitimate translation. But what is it really saying? Barachu, let us bless. Et doesn't mean anything. It's just a, a connecting word to whatever object or thing you're talking about, which in this case is God. Let us bless God. Hamevorach, the blessed one. The people gathered and all spread out in the market go, oh, I heard that. I keep losing my keep I heard that. We really do need to gather. But it takes them a moment back in market days. We're just in a sanctuary. We just stand up and do it. But back then, it was a big deal. So when they were sort of gathered as a community, they would say, they would respond with a bar. Now the barhu, let us bless, becomes baruch. We, uh, blessed is Adonai. Baruch Adonai. Blessed is God. Hamevorach, who is blessed. Le'olam va'ed, which means forever and ever. Le'olam va'ed. So they were all gathered and now they're ready to pray and they've said that they're ready to pray and the prayer leader, and usually that would be a person who is being, uh, it would be a rotating job, would then again say, Baruch Adonai Baruch, they would repeat it. So now this is the call to prayer. So how do we do it? Baruch, remember I told you about the bend bow? We don't have Baruch Ata, so I can't bend and bow on Ata. So I, Baruchu et Adonai, being up for Adonai stands the same. So if you missed at the beginning of the class, I was saying why we bend, where we bend. So God's name still has to be said up, standing up, not to the floor. Baruchu et Adonai, Hamevorach, you'll all respond. Baruch Adonai, Hamevorach, 
You may have, when you were doing it, do a little bend, bow, a little bend, bow, a little bow, a little up, or not, because I did it, and you can do your own. I would then respond, either maybe with a little bow or not. I heard you. Cool, you're here, we're gathered, we can pray. The service is just beginning now. Anything that came before it was just warm-up material. This is the beginning of any service, all of our services. Okay. Let's do it one more time, because I want you to know your part. And then I will do something else, which will be based on you knowing your part. <coughs> By the way, we stand and face east. That is why the ark is where it is. It's always east in any synagogue, unless it's in Jerusalem, in which case it faces, uh, it, it faces the wall. It depends where your synagogue is located within Jerusalem. It faces to the hotel, to the wall. So, you can rise, please. Call to prayer. This is my part, just so you know. I'm the leader of prayer. The prayer leader, the community, back to the prayer leader. one or body or specific uh, prayer throughout the next several weeks, each class. So if there's something you really want to get to, let me know. The Shema is already on the list, so you don't have to ask for that. Okay, now turn to page 378. What was that, 378? 368. 368. 368. And you can skip down on page 368 to the middle where it says the blessing before the reading of the Torah. This blessing is called, in other words, there's a word for it. Do you know what this blessing is called? It is called an, with an A in English, but it's a Hebrew word. What is it? I think I heard it. Aliyah. Aliyah. Very good. An Aliyah. An Aliyah. Aliyah. Aliyah means going up. Uh, an Aliyah the Canadianized, Americanized way of saying it, an aliyah, or an aliyah, is to both to go up in, in, you can go up a flight of stairs. You can go up by going up to Israel. Making aliyah, it means leaving your home country and moving to Israel. It's a going up, if you're Jewish, to go, to, to ascend to live in Israel. Um, when you make aliyah on the bima, you go up to where the Torah is. It's an honor to go up to Torah, and this would be the name of the blessing you're going to do. It's the Aliyah, the blessing of Aliyah. Yes. This is really random and kind of funny. Okay. I only learned that because I watched this YouTube with Drake, the rapper, the Canadian rapper. He yeah. He was Jewish. Oh. So he had a bar mitzvah, and then he said he, he did like a little rap on like a Saturday Night Live. Like, Saturday Night Live no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see it. Can you send me the link? Oh, that's yeah, great. <laughs> Torah, or otherwise known as the Aliyah, the Aliyah. 
starts with what words? You read them. Uh, I heard it. Bar You know that word. We just looked at it. Bar et Adonai. Baruch, Adonai, Hamevorach. Very nice. Look at the next line. Baruch, Adonai. Good. I hope we leave you guys are really reading Hebrew here. Even if you're just seeing it, knowing what you're seeing. Hamevorach. That's that same word. Hamevorach. Leolam. Beautiful. Leolam. It is the same words that we call people to pray with. These are not hard words to learn, but they are the words you're going to need for your own aliyah, which you're going to want to have. One day you will want to go up there and have your It's awesome to stand up beside Torah and to have that honor of saying that blessing and the Torah reader will read for you. Or maybe in the best of moments, in the perfect world, you will read your own Torah reading for your own aliyah. Because in the old days, that was what was going on. When you were called up to Torah, the honor was you were being called up to read a portion of Torah. It was such a great honor that you would be asked to come up to read a portion of Torah that you would make a blessing before and after that moment. So it wouldn't go by without ceremony. So you would bless and you would read the Torah and then you would bless again. And you'd move to the other side of the Torah and somebody else would come up and bless and read the Torah and bless. And then what happened? More and more people wanted to be able to go up to Torah and fewer and fewer people had the skill of doing that. It's pretty darn hard to just get up and go and read the Torah. You need all it. Well, these days you need those days. People, some academics, they knew the Torah. They knew it well. They could get up and read a section of Torah. And believe me, it wasn't any short little section like we do these days. Section of Torah was long, and they read seven, and a repeated one, an eighth one, which was a repeat of seven, is the typical. And in an Orthodox world, they're still still doing that. The entire section of the Torah that they would read in one Saturday morning would be the entire parasha, Torah portion, of whatever one we're on. We read a snippet, just a taste, just a little bit of whatever. We had Yitro last week. Last week it was the Ten Commandments in Yitro. We started at the end just so we would make sure we got the Ten Commandments, and I believe that's really all we read. All we read. I mean, it was great. But in the in an Orthodox world or in the old days, they read the entire parasha, the section, so that at the end of one calendar year, they would have read the Torah from the beginning to the end, not missed a single word in between. So, because fewer and fewer people could do such a thing, because that skill is really difficult, they would substitute a person to read the Torah, a person of great learning who would read the Torah on behalf of all the other people, but the other people still wanted their opportunity to have an aliyah. So they would come up and they would do the blessing, thank you person for reading for me, and do the blessing again. Sort of you knowing though in those days that this person was doing what they couldn't do for themselves. In the ideal world, you might come up, do your own aliyah, and do your own Torah reading. It's not so impossible, especially when we learn the Shema, which we will, the Hafta from the Shema. Uh, which at least I can say we'll learn it. I will, I will introduce it to you. You can learn it if you want to, and I encourage you to. The reason being that the Shema is based on the music of the Torah. The chanting, the way we chant Torah is how we sing the Shema. So if you come to service and you do that, um, you know, the Be'ahavta, that's in Torah language. Okay.
Going back to this, this is the Aliyah that I would love for you to have your own Aliyah one day. So, Barachu et Adonai Hamavorach. The music is slightly different, but it's not hard. Instead of Barachu et Adonai, which is the call to prayer, it's Barachu et Adonai Hamavorach. The congregation then responds, just like the prayer leader does with the so the congregation responds, Baruch Adonai Hamavorach Le'olam Ba'ed. The person who's been called up for their aliyah responds with repeating what they've heard. It's just a reflection of that market day call to prayer. That's what we're trying to reenact here. It's a, it's a holier call to prayer, but we're reenacting. So you would repeat it. Baruch Adonai Hamavorach Le'olam Ba'ed. Great. Was a question? Um, Jeff Gordon usually reads this. I often see him reading the Aaliyah, right? And he's he, wouldn't, he wouldn't read the Aaliyah. He might coach the person who's come up for the Aaliyah to make sure that they're doing it correctly and comfortably on the spot. He, did, he shouldn't be chanting the Aaliyah much. He should just be helping. We're talking about the person who's the gabai, which is the person who sort of uh, stands by for the Torah service to call people up for these honors. He does a little prayer, he does a little call up, so they'll say, That's not this, that's a little, that's just called ta'amod. Think of the word amida, the standing prayer. Ta'amod from the same root, or ya'amod, or ya'amdu, ta'amdu, whatever he might call it, or plural or singular or whatever. He maybe uses one generic one. Anyway, ta'amod, ta'amod, livracha, livracha, for the blessing. Stand for the blessing, Larry, da na na but he calls in the Hebrew name, and then they'll just say, spoken words to call you by your English name as well. So, or they could say, Ta'amod Torah, Torah, the reader of the Torah. So whatever the, the honor is that you're being called up for. Or Ta'amod Lehagba, I don't know how they do the Hagba call. Hagba, lifting of the Torah, and so on. So, you know how they do. No, they do a I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think they call for an honor. I just escaped me for a second. Yeah, I can get it. I can stand it. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. You need to be Jewish to do the um, yes. this blessing? Yes. To do this blessing, okay. you must be Jewish. We only would allow a non-Jewish person to come up with their Jewish spouse on the occasion of their child bar but mitzvah. We don't want to do that Officially, they shouldn't be doing the blessing at all, but if they join in and they do it, as long as the Jewish person is doing it, we don't mind. We don't worry about it. But in, a, in any other synagogue other than reform, uh, that would be allowed. They couldn't be for that, for Torah. Can't come up to Torah. Uh, during a B'nai Mitzvah, is that part usually, uh, or if it's if it's a bar but mitzvah, about mitzvah by a young person. Is that usually the family who does so that? So usually for a bar bat mitzvah, they, in this synagogue, which is not typical, and other synagogues will do seven aliyot and a repeated seven, so an eight, which one is called machir, doesn't really matter. Here we generally do five. The kid usually does five aliyot. Each aliyah, uh, the first three, 
uh, will be family and friends, whoever they want, and we usually reserve, oh, we actually have uh, done six now, we'll make them repeat. They, they, they learn five and they repeat one. Uh, one is for community, because we do our community dedication, anybody who's dedicated a tour. Unless they don't want to, they don't have to. And the fifth one, the last one will go to the child. We save the kid for the end because we want to make a big, you know, production of the last one. And can you imagine why do the parents before the kid, not just out of respect because the parents before the kid, there's a specific reason why the parents come right before the kid. A very, very logical reason. They generally do. They generally do. That's the and and yes, they're the parents, and that's nice. And yes, it's respectful, and that's nice. But there's a better reason than that. Because they're handing down um, the All that responsibility. Emotional. Very nice, and there's a more logical, basic reason than that. And it is that the person who comes up stands at Torah and watches the Torah reader reading Torah. When the parents come up for their aliyah, they watch the child read for them. And then they move to the other side, which they don't have to, because there's no one coming up after them. It's the kid. And the kid stands up there and has their own Aliyah, and the parents again get to stand up there and watch their child have their bar mitzvah moment and be there. You know, it's lovely. So occasionally the parents will say to me at a rehearsal, I have a daughter in Rabbi yet, but is there any way we could come up first? We just really think it would be nice if we came up first, and then maybe our son after that, and then I said, you can, but you will miss a very old. I hadn't thought of that. And 100% of the time, they still take the side to go home. So, let's try it again in the music of the Aliyah. It's Baruch Hu. Okay, I get them mixed up. Here we go. Baruch Adonai Hamorach. And the response. Baruch Adonai Hamorach. Leolam Ba'el. And repeat it. Baruch Adonai Hamorach. Leolam Ba'el. Okay, it goes on very easy the next through the next six words. I'm going to sing them with you because you can do them. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam. Okay, let's read. Asher Shadur. Bachar. That Asher, that which Bachar chose. What's the next word? Banu in us. Chose in us.
Venatan. Very nice. Venatan and gave. Venatan and gave. Lanu to us and gave to us. Tet, which doesn't mean anything. And gave to us what? What? Torah. Torah. What? Torah. Torah. The Torah of him. His Torah. His Torah. God's Torah. Male gendered, I know, but that's how we refer to God. Torah. And gave us his Torah. So people want to forget. They look at the word Torah and they go, oops. It's, it's, there's a little ending there. It's just an ending of whose Torah are we talking about. Okay? Ben-atanu-anu et Torah. This musical theme is very repetitive. It's the same tune over and over. What's the last word line? Baruch. Do you see it? Khatima. There's the Khatima. This is a blessing. It gets a Khatima. No tain. Beautiful. Baruch Adonai. No tain. Or Baruch Adonai. No tain Torah. Both versions equally heard. No tain or no tain. Doesn't matter. We'll probably go with the no tain for this moment. So Baruch Adonai. No tain Torah. From the top. Baruch Adonai. So you will open, I will follow, you'll repeat, and you'll continue, and I will help you, obviously. Ready? Barhu. Barhu to go into the Baruch Atah because it's only written here once the Baruch Adonai Hamborah I want that's why I'm being so picky about it it happens up on the Bima all the time and everybody gets kind of like uh, uh, tongue tied you gotta learn to repeat or wait for the repeat because I'm going to do the actual line and you will repeat it okay so let's try it again try to get the repeat alright Baruch are we starting from that was going to blend Blessed be. So Baruch, blessed we, we will bless. 
Baruch The second line will be Baruch. Okay? Baruch Ready? Baruch et Adonai Hamvorach. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Keep going. Baruch Adonai Adonai. anti-Semitism, and, and certainly, of course, uh, to Nazism and, and the Holocaust, which I want to explain that term in a moment. Um, it's part of our people's narrative. I mean, we just read the story of the biblical exodus from Egypt, and you can view that through the lens of, uh, of an attempted genocide and annihilation of people. So, part of what we look at in terms of the lens on this is a lens of history. This has happened before, and so we can look to our texts and we can look to the coping mechanisms of our people to find ways to, uh, to deal with that. My rabbinic thesis was on 
uh, responsa, I'll explain that term in a moment, responsa of the Holocaust. Responsa are rabbinic questions, questions that are asked of rabbis, legal questions, where the answer is not obvious in Jewish tradition, where you couldn't just open up the, the Torah or open up the Talmud and you would know your answer because it's, everybody knows it. You need a clarification. And so I wrote on questions that came out of the, of the Holocaust, in the, in the midst of the Holocaust, in the midst of concentration camps and ghettos, about, largely about Jewish practice. Could you, it says you can't build a sukkah from stolen materials. But if the Nazis have taken everything from you and you can cobble together and steal from them a few bits of wood, can you build a sukkah out of stolen wood from the Nazis? There's a curfew that says you're not allowed to go out, but there's a mitzvah that says you have to go to the mikvah, or you need to attend minyan, or daven with other Jews. Are you, are you permitted to risk your life to go to the minyan, or are you obligated not to risk your life? He's, kinds of questions, very difficult stuff. Um, and the answers from the rabbis that were writing these, that were dealing with these questions, was that they didn't have to look, they didn't have to make it up, because all they had to do was look back into other times in Jewish history and extrapolate from there those same questions that happened during the Inquisition, the same questions that happened during pogroms in Eastern Europe before this, uh, and on through Jewish history. So I want to clarify uh, two terms. One is, uh, is Holocaust, and the other is Shoah. So Holocaust, does anybody know the origin of that word? What Holocaust is? Fire, but it's a particular type of fire. It's a burnt offering. It's a burnt offering. So technically, when we speak of the Holocaust, when we speak of the burnt offerings in Torah, when the Israelites are asked to make a sacrifice in the biblical temple, they would make a Holocaust, if you were going to use sort of the appropriate English word for it. Most Israelis particularly, Hebrew speakers particularly, and Jews today don't use the word Holocaust. That has sort of left favor within the Jewish community and has been replaced with the, with the Hebrew term, which is Shoah, which is much closer to catastrophe. Mm. Um, the, the reason we don't use, well, let's sort of tease it out a little bit. Why would Jews, why would the word Holocaust fall out of favor with Jews? But it's overused now. Right. So one is overused, but, but if we go back to sort of the definition of the term. Well, why if, would it's, if it's an offering, are right. we offering, it, are we offering for Jews being offered up? Right. Yeah. right. So it, you know, it, it wasn't a term that Jews had originally chosen for themselves, but the, the, the Shoah came later in terms of the definition of the term. There were, we almost lacked the language to describe it. Um, but in this sense that this was somehow prescribed, there, there's a theology out there that this was somehow necessary to cleanse the Jewish people, to cleanse uh, the world, to provide for Israel. It's not a theology that I'm going to go into a lot of detail. But, but, but there is amongst, amongst even the Jewish community a sense that we brought this on ourselves. And it's so, out of... I'm sorry, I'm just yeah. curious to interrupt you, but sorry. No, no, please do. But... Um, who coined that term? Did it come out of that thinking? But who, who you know, started it? You know, I'm not really it? sure of the origin of the term. Um, it, it, it's contemporaneous with the end of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. it, it came out of a, of a period of time, a milieu, if you would, when there was a tremendous feeling of guilt um, amongst mm -hmm. the world. I mean, this was this brief moment when people had empathy for Jews. Right. Uh, and Israel was unable to be created. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, and that this idea that from the sacrifice of these six million lives or eleven million lives, was you know, something born? something was born, something good was was, was created. Um, if we had more time, and, and this wasn't an introduction to Judaism course, but a, a you know a deeper course, the next level course, we can look at the theology of the Holocaust. But as an introduction to Judaism class, I'm not going to go there because no. it'll muddy the waters. But but. Um, so the term that we use instead is Shoah, the idea that this was a catastrophe that happened, that this was a horrible event. The other word or term that I want to use with you is um, grows out of the, uh, the establishment of the modern state of Israel. So when Israel was founded, it was founded largely by Holocaust survivors. I mean, that is who fought for the War of Independence, and that's who settled beyond the original settlers of Halutzim, the people that built the modern state of Israel were the, the sacred remnant of those that survived Eastern Europe, or survived Europe in the Holocaust. Um, and so when it came time to create a day of commemoration for the Holocaust, the, what they created was Yom HaShoah, the Gevurah. So we often just call it Yom HaShoah, but it is the day of the catastrophe and also the rebellion. And the day they chose, if you know a little bit about Holocaust history, there were moments of uprising uh, by Jewish communities amidst the Holocaust, and they chose the day of the uprising of the Warsaw Ghetto um, as the day that they would commemorate both the, the destruction of the Holocaust, but also the time the Jews fought back. And that's very much in the ethos of, of modern Israel, that uh, Israel stands you know, so that this will never happen again. Uh, so I just want to give you those two terms as a frame. So I, I will assume that you know a bit about the Holocaust, that you've seen Schindler's List, that you've you know, watched television, that you've grown up in a period where these things were studied, if not by you, then by your children. And, and for some of you, 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 know, you were just uh, shortly after World War II as you were coming of age, and this was a part of the discussion. Um, so I want to be able to add a little bit to that understanding. Uh, and also answer questions, but I also want to just hit some of the highlights or the basics. And then I brought a 34-minute clip. I could have brought anything, you know. It, there is so much incredible material out there uh, on, on the show off. Uh, and, but I happened across this one, and, and I think it will be an interesting discussion starter because it deals with uh, the aspect of the show off that we're confronting now, which is that the surviving generation is dying off. And what we'll come back to uh, at the end of this clip and in our discussion is what does that mean for us as a Jewish people going forward? Shoah happened. Um, we've lived now through a period where we've had to deal with and live with the, the, the effects of the Shoah on, its, on the survivor generation and their children's generation. We're now in the, children, the grandchildren of survivors. Those that, that, that may have never, and those, your children, your grandchildren, will grow up never having spoken to somebody who survived the Holocaust, survived the Shoah. They won't have the kinds of dialogues that I had as a teenager where at every youth group event, they would bring in a Holocaust survivor and they would come and talk with you about their experiences. What, whatever they experience will be in things like this. And the conversation I want us to have is then what role does the Shoah have in your Jewish identity? And as part of that, what role does it did it have in the Jewish identity of the last 60, 70 years of the Jewish people? How has that shaped us? But to, to just uh, touch on a few things. So, so what do you know about the Shoah? When did it happen and where? 
39 to 45. 39 to 45, 38 maybe. And where? In Europe. In Europe. Mainly Germany. Sorry? Poland. Mainly Germany. Poland, actually, Poland. mainly Poland. Poland. Poland, Germany, uh, Czechoslovakia, mm -hmm. uh, so Eastern Europe, um, uh, Hungary, and, and those and those areas. Um, I mean, Poland. it stretched to yeah, it stretched to Hungary. Uh, I mean, it was in Italy, France. It was France. Italy, right? It was when, wherever, wherever the Nazis went, right? They so wherever the Axis powers were, <laughs> the, the Shoah came with. Um, who were its targets? Um, Jews and poor Eastern Europeans, mm -hmm. mainly. Homosexuals. Homosexuals. Disabled. Disabled, disabled yeah. social deviants. Pretty much of, anybody who was color. not white, uh, blonde Harry. hair, right. blue eyes. Right. <laughs> anybody that didn't fit the definition of the ubermensch, of the, the superhuman being. Um, and why? What was the... Uh, they wanted a master race or something. Right. Right. Or that's what they want, a master yeah. race, right? But Jews were being killed in Germany long before 1938. I mean, as soon as Hitler came in, they were, being, they were being rounded up and summarily executed without trial right. in, in a number of cases. Right, and, and as I said before, Starting that has been part of our history, you know, you know in Tsarist Russia, yeah. The, yeah. The, the scapegoating of the Jews and the anti-Semitism that was underneath that. This went, this, this went beyond anti-Semitism. This went beyond the usual. I'm just talking about Hitler's, went, Hitler's warming up. This right. refers to the beginning of the systematic, mm -hmm. uh, the, the plan to mm -hmm. eradicate. Mm -hmm. Right. Final solution. So much planning went into it. So we'll use that term, final solution. And you bring up, Sergio, the economic argument. Yeah. What was this the final solution to? What was the problem that they were trying to solve? so many things happening after the Depression and then after World War One that, that, right. that it was easier to scapegoat someone. So scapegoat Jews because they typically had money, they had they had the wherewithal to to um, have an economy and they were the cause of it. They were the cause of the problem. That was right. the so it happens throughout history, it often happens to us that when uh, people's economic times are, are hard, when there's no job, when there's no um, you know, sense of prosperity. They look for somebody to blame, and um, Jews make a, an, an easy target. We are. Why are we an easy target? Historically, why are Jews an easy target? Who knows? <laughs> okay, so we have, we have, we have, yeah. So we have blood libel, and that we killed Jesus and used the blood of Christian babies to make matzah. Oh. Um, <laughs> uh, and why else? Historically done well for ourselves. Okay, so not only have we historically done well for ourselves, but we're the eternal other. We are always the outsider. We're a we're this is one of the reasons why we I, we talk in this congregation so often about the commandment to love the stranger because you are one strangers in the land. We are an eternally wandering people. And we are in small numbers in countries, but we come in with, if not power, with wealth. Rarely power, but the power that you can attain through wealth. Why is that? There's some fundamental reasons that are fascinating for it, and briefly. So, Jews were never allowed to own land in most of the countries that they lived, so they had to get into trades or into, into businesses that were portable and that were, you would say, uh, uh, um, insulated from the government of the day. And that often meant into 
money and jewels, fine jewels, precious metals, those kinds of things. They had value no matter what country they were in, and they could quickly take with them and go, you can't take a farm with you. But if you deal in diamonds, you can put those in you know, the lining of your jacket and off you go. In addition to that, when the, before things like the internet and international commerce, if you wanted to do a trade with somebody in another country, there was no legal system to, to protect your trade. But Jews had an a international legal system, a code of law, which was the Talmud. So if you went to a Jew to do a deal, and his cousin, his uncle, his you know, yeshiva friend, his whatever, it didn't matter, the guy he knew in shul in that other country, whatever it was that day of the week, over the border, he acted as your go-between between the non-Jew and, and you know, his agent, which was a Jewish person. They had a code of law that would keep them in, uh, you know, in hopefully a good ethical relationship with the other. But that also meant that there were times when either that got taken advantage of on the Jewish side, we weren't all you know, saints in Judaism, we weren't all saints, or somebody decided to, to back out of their end of the deal and would blame the Jewish person for it um, without any recourse. And Jews would have separate, uh, would, you know, would have their own court system to deal with things within, internally, but if they got themselves into the, um, the more public court system, they were always in an inferior position. So all of these things put them in a position where they would often hold keys to if not power to commerce, and if it's not going well for you, that's the easy person to blame, is the guy that you go to to change your money. Um, how many people died? Six million. Six million, Six million Jews, Jews died. Eleven million people total. So another five million. One point five million of the Jews that died were children. So if you go to Israel and you go to Yad Vashem, which is the Israel Holocaust Museum, there is a whole separate building called the Children's Memorial, just to those 1.5 dedicated, just those 1.5 million children. That died. Um, how many Jews were there in Eastern Europe? Do you know? There were eight million Jews in Eastern Europe. So nearly wiped out all of the Jews of Eastern Europe, save two million. Places like Poland, where they had 3.5 million Jews, had 10,000 10, Jews left after the war. How did it happen and, and what were the methods? Right, so it was pretty much whatever method was the most expedient. They obviously, they started with, uh, with, with, the, with the obvious and the, the familiar, but then realized that in the scale of trying to eradicate an entire people, eight million Jews, that they didn't have enough bullets and they need to do it in a more efficient way. And, and we know also, um, through documents, that the Nazi war machine prioritized the final solution or the murdering of Jews ahead of many of their war efforts. In fact, some say they might have won the war, or at least one of the fronts, perhaps the Russian front, if they, because they were right on the edge there was in Stalingrad, if they had not uh, been trying to kill the Jews. Um, why was it permitted to happen? People didn't believe it. Okay, so there was some one sense of disbelief, right? Especially if you think without the moving images that we have moving, I mean like pictures and video and, and all of that that we have today, you hear something. You, you, you know, and I, when I thought about this, I thought about this with ISIS. 
I haven't watched any of those horrible videos that, that apparently you can see on the internet, but when you hear them, you, you, you think it's impossible. When I saw something the other day that, that would, in terms of burning children or something like that, you just, you just you think that it's impossible for human beings to be doing something like that. You dismiss it almost as just, you know, just, just fanciful thinking. And this is that today where we have media all right. over. We still... Right. It's still... Um, don't want to believe that You don't want to believe it. You, you, you think human beings wouldn't be capable of that. So there's an element of that, of disbelief. There is, yeah? One thing also, is, as you said before, they're so systematic. So they started by, you know, there's the taking away of books, and right. the taking away of art, and, you know, and then, hey, and in schools, and okay, now you wear this register, right. and now you wear the star. And so it was, you know, it was, it was a slippery slope. Right, and a very important part of that is that when you de- humanize your target, you then can make willing participants or collaborators of, you, you, you've essentially made it not only legal and permissible, but encouraged to, to, to persecute these people. That becomes a rite of passage. It becomes an expression of your um, patriotism. And so if everybody's doing it, then it must be okay. And we like to think, well, we would never be duped into thinking that way. But if you look, and again, I use American references. If you look to the Americans, uh, the history of African Americans, of blacks in the American South, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a Shoah, but but the institutionalized and and public um, you know persecution of these individuals because we were we because they just said that that's what you do, and then you have people that jump along, and, and then if you allow that to happen generationally. Yes. I was going to say the residential school thing. Yeah. Okay. Right. I I think I think too, we um, it leads to the development of or the installation of deep seat, deeply held beliefs about those other people mm -hmm. uh, that we somehow can even even when our even when our rational selves. Um, you, you know, it, it's probably we, we we just we just believe them. Right. It's difficult not to believe them. Right. I mean, yeah. Well, part of that has to do with the media propaganda yeah. and all the rest of it. I mean, probably how many people know how many people died, for instance, in the Central Republic of Congo <coughs> in the past three years since twenty since twenty twelve. They're estimating around five million people, and that's in one country. So it's not as though it's not happening, but nobody knows that, do they? Because media. And I, I think in England, there were, I think um, the aristocracy and the upper class, classes that still held a little bit, you know, quite a bit of power there, they actually admired uh, Hitler. In, you know, they, they, there were many, many parts of Hitler's um, ideology that they, they thought were, was pretty right. smart. Right. Yeah, look at how we admire any country was this taken over. England, France, um, Spain, aspect wow. of anti-Semitism <laughs> that, that is always there. Anti-Semitism doesn't go away. Okay, it's like a shadow. So the sun, you know, the sun goes down and the shadow is not there, but it's still there. The sun goes up and the shadow comes back. It never really goes away. And and so it was not just in Germany. It was throughout the world. Watch the gentleman's agreement if you want one day. Um, even and today, there's a lot of hatred towards right. Jews, and it's starting to <laughs> become a big thing now. Right. Sorry, Mr. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's 
my real estate agent in Los Angeles for selling our house. So, um, <laughs> hopefully, find out. Um, okay, so um, just a couple other little things uh, just to sort of cover. So in terms of terminology, just a few words to be familiar with. Kristallnacht, the night of the broken glass. This was the beginning of the uh, implementation of the, the anti-Jewish laws, particularly against Jewish businesses and the, and the intentionalized the institutionalized persecution of the Jews. A pogrom, I mentioned the word before, this is a, um, you know, essentially a lynching of a community. Um, Um, okay, so what I want to do is, um, so I want to show you this 35 minute video, uh, and then we will uh, have a conversation about what does this mean for you, uh, either as somebody that is Jew curious and is going to continue is a, with an affinity for the Jewish people, or somebody who's entering into the Jewish people, or somebody who's born Jewish and is now confronting the, 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 the challenges of being Jewish in this day and raising children and grandchildren uh, in, in, the, in the present Jewish reality. So, if everybody can see. It's funny because that spinach dip recipe I just found online today. I'm like, oh, it's okay. Oh, that's awesome. It's awesome. The spinach dip. I just it's great. I never tried that recipe, so I'm like, everything's good. The spinach dip is one of my favorites. Secret onion soup mix. I've never done that before. such a horrible thing that has happened that it, it kind of makes it difficult to talk about and discuss sometimes. Well, he, I mean, he's not as impactful if, if you weren't familiar with the history or maybe weren't connected to someone and you were seeing this for the first time. I mean, he almost makes light of it. I mean, he, he's joyous. He's giddy. He's mm -hmm. A little too joyous, too I think. <laughs> Some of the terminology sort of turned me off, but 
Yeah, that type of yeah thing. it took it too light. Crazy story. So why do we do that? So <laughs> why does that happen? Why do people take something like, like the Shoah or 9-11 or um, ISIS or whatever? Why, why do we do that and, and then put it into these kinds of frames and terms? What's, what's going they're on? They're uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, uh, I don't know. It's weird. I mean, when you think it's now, it's like you can skim over it. You, can, you don't have to sit and ponder and He's talking, talking, talking. There's very little pauses. He really lets other people speak. So juxtapose that with that final video clip that he showed, which wasn't the greatest of clips because you could mm. hardly see in that one car. I wasn't sure it was going to stop. Um, <laughs> they all stopped. Maybe they were they Arabs. All got out of their cars. Juxtapose <laughs> his response to what Israel has done in order to commemorate, memorialize, articulate the memory of the Holocaust, where they have given exactly that pause where there are no words, and they require people to reflect on it in a moment of, of solidarity and silence and solemnity. Well, he did cut it short, actually, because people usually get out of their cars. Right, they were getting out, but yes. Oh, okay. Everybody gets so out. So this is one of the challenges that I present to you, because it's going to, look, it's in my hands and it's in your hands, but it's more in your hands than mine, honestly, because... Look, rabbis and Jewish educators can say all they want inside of these buildings, but it's what you say inside of your home, around your Seder table, to your grandkids when you tuck them in at night, or when they come home with a homework assignment about the Holocaust. Now, Larry's a, you know, a high school teacher, he can tell you about this, um, that is going to determine how this event is not only remembered so that it's not forgotten, but remembered so that it's not repeated. And we are, um, we, we throw the term Holocaust around a lot. We make, if not, so there's this other, the other part of the video that I wanted to bring up was that there is this dialectic, uh, if not even a, a, a dilemma within the Jewish community particularly, about is it our Holocaust that happened to us, and our unique horrible event, or is it the template for all horrible events in the world and should be taught in this universal way that anything could lead to a Holocaust? Is it unique and distinct to us? Or is it the, 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 you know, the, the canary in the mine shaft for everybody to, to, to look to? Yes. Well, I think the, um, the, Hulk, the, the older woman, mm -hmm. um, the Holocaust survivor, uh, she had experienced it, and no one else had. Although they, they, because of their jobs, they're right. they're they're in it, and they're they. But she, um, they were talking about immunity, and how can we become immune from this kind of hatred? And I just thought she kind of came close to it. I think the, the closest to it when she said, you know, really, she implied that there is no immunity in this. The potential for doing such things exists in us, every one of us. Some, I guess, I don't know. Anyway, it does the potential. And he was saying, "Well, how can we, how can we, um, 
uh, anticipate and, and prevent future disasters? Such a huge question. But within each one of us, we know how easy it is for us to hate and or to dislike, to, to distrust. We bully at school. We, we, um, you know, we, we form cliques. We, we're really cruel. We can be cruel. And that is, I think it's the person you have to, to realize that you yes. have to examine yourself and, and be truthful with yourself about what's happening. And that's at least, what's, I think that has to be there. Otherwise, you're just, you're, you're holier than thou because honestly, it's, it's but we can I, all I do mean, it. I think that it is specific to the Jewish history, this story, and it does need to be um, recognized as such. Yes, I mean, every group gets bullied and, and we do persecute, you know, each other and we have these different feelings of each other, but this is particular to the Jewish history and the hatred towards the Jews. One thing that I notice, especially on social media and on the internet, is that right now, anti-Semitism is really the only thing that when you attack a group that it is completely accepted amongst people around the world whereas like if you if you put down the Arab like Muslims or blacks or anybody people will like jump on you but if you if somebody goes on and and rants about uh, like is anti-semitic nobody cares yeah it's Outrageous. And, and it just, something that really needs to be recognized, you know? Um, I just wanted to uh, say one thing about the interviewer there. Um, I think he was in a tough position as well, and I agree with what everybody said, but there was kind of a duality there or something in that, um, on the one hand, they were celebrating the fact that she had survived, her father, had, I get it, her brother had survived, her parents had survived, a really miraculous show, story. Yeah, miraculous. Yeah. And they also yeah. show, you know, the survivors, and I'm going to wear it as a badge, and so on. And it's and it's wonderful, and, and because they survived, and and they're dealing with it. But on the other hand, there's the horror of the Holocaust, and, he, and it was like he was dancing right. back and forth, you know, happy for her, and then the next minute. It's almost yeah, like he was like yeah. promoting a Hollywood movie or something. Yeah, it felt that way. <laughs> so let me it's just in the couple minutes that we have left touch on just a couple of points I wanted to make sure I covered. So um, one of the challenges that we face post-Holocaust is how much we allow the Holocaust to define us as a people. And it grows out of this definition of, of Yom HaShoah Gemurah in Israel as the day of the catastrophe and the rebellion or the uprising. There are, there are some within the Jewish community that want to get over the Holocaust, that don't want to be fine as Jews, the ever-suffering, always-persecuted people. There are some within Israel, and Israel, this, this is part of early uh, state of Israel history, that when Israel was established, they didn't, the Holocaust survivors established it, but they didn't talk about the Holocaust. You know, their, their response in general was, bad things happen to all sorts of people, we've got a country to build don't wallow in your suffering. And it, in fact, it wasn't until 15 years ago that they realized they had to rebuild the, the Israel Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem, because it, it wasn't telling the story. It was, uh, it was, it was skirting the story in many ways and not, and not, it was making all sorts of leaps and assumptions that people knew what had happened. So there's, 
there is this challenge within the Jewish community of how much do we allow ourselves to be divided by this? How often do we get up there and beat the drum? People tried to kill us, and that's why you should be Jewish. I mean, there are Jews that, that are Jewish today because of the Holocaust. Um, you know, that is their whole reason for being, that is their, that is their motivation, and you, want, you ask yourself, is that sustainable? You know, is the, is the anger or resentment that burns in the pit of your of your, your belly over that going to actually, you know, uh, uh, promote this people for generations to come? So that, that's one point that you just need to, 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 to think about, is how much does the Holocaust define us as a people, or how much do we let it define us? The other is the very real challenge that I presented at the beginning, which is when we lose the survivor generation, how do we tell this story? in a way that preserves it with integrity and with uh, the, the significance and the, and the uniqueness and solemnity that's required. Israel's response is a national siren, and everybody gets out and, and, and stands. At some point, and in Israel, all the students now go to, to Poland on the March of the Living or trips like that, so they make a pilgrimage just as used to be that as the North American teens made a pilgrimage to Israel post-bar mitzvah. They, may now make a, they now make a pilgrimage to Poland. This was very controversial to spend money in Poland. Um, to Poland to visit those camps, to, to, to touch it and to feel it. Survivors come through the schools, but that will stop us. And that's in Israel. How do we teach it outside of Israel? How do we preserve this when the survivors are gone? The blue-eyed, brown eye. Uh, experiment, remember that? Mm -hmm. Right, so there's these social experiments, the wave, and all these other things. Powerful. Mm -hmm. Yes. You said you were going to uh, touch on what that means for us as converts. Yeah, wanna... so thank you. Um, the, I would feel like we failed the reason you decided to uh, align yourself, uh, attach yourself to the Jewish people, was because they've been trying to kill us forever. I don't think that's what, God, I don't think that's what, what aligns you to your partner or spouse, if that's the reason you came into this, this class, or what brought you into this building. And I worry that what you hear as this generation is dying off, more and more is a worry about not being able to tell the story. Is you hear this, excuse me, you, you hear this, uh, this message of they're always trying to kill us in synagogues often. And I, I worry that one, it will turn people off, uh, and that it's not uh, replicable or sustainable or something I would want you to just sustain in your own lives and families. But at the same time, there's a bit of a litmus test, I think. As you enter into the Jewish people, you're, the families that you come into as a, a Gerber Toshav or as a, you know, as a person that hasn't converted but is you know, affiliated with the Jewish community or as a new Jew, a Jew by choice, the litmus test is do you care about this? Because it didn't really happen to you, it happened to us. And you're joining a people, but you, you, this would never have happened to you. you know, even if you had converted, Hitler probably wouldn't have taken it. Maybe he would have. But, yeah. um, but so you're going to face, within some parts of the families that you enter, this litmus test of does this, does this really matter to you? Prove it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I, I just I don't have a great solution for you entering the family that you have. I hope that they're loving and accepting and empathic and the whole thing. But I want to raise it up for you to recognize that this is a thing in our people. Uh, you know, where are you on the Holocaust? Is it over? Is it still happening? Is it going to happen again? Any final comments or thoughts? Yeah. Hey, uh, I think even the survivor alluded to it by uh, identifying uh, an individual recently burning the Quran. Right. And uh, so in that context, it's far from over. Mm -hmm. Right. What is far from over? So the persecution of people. Of people, yeah. Absolutely. For those who have uh, differing views, perspectives, or convictions. Yeah. For me, I was searching sure. at one point through the Torah looking, help me, Rabbi. Um, there's a passage, I think it's in Deuteronomy, that a father cannot die for the sins of a son, right. or a son die for the sins of a father. Uh, I couldn't find it at the moment. But you know, me watching this is pretty powerful because of my ancestry. So the Torah is of great comfort but also of, uh, serves as a great reminder that I am dealt with by Adonai as an individual. So let me share one last comment and we'll wrap. Um, so when we, when I came out so publicly on the Syrian refugee issue, and I'm not the only rabbi to have done it, I just happened to be the one that did it here in Vancouver, I guess, and, and the... I was very careful not to compare what was happening in the Syrian refugee crisis, and in Syria in particular, and on the beaches of, of, of Greece, to the Holocaust. But people still, and I actually spoke in my sermon saying, I'm not, this is not a Holocaust, there's a paragraph in there, this is not the Holocaust. But people heard that as, he's saying this is the Holocaust, and this isn't the Holocaust. And there is this sensitivity within our community that you can't, you know, what I was talking about before, it's our Holocaust, you can't can't say anything else about the Holocaust. There's only one Holocaust. Um, and what that sets up, obviously, and what I discovered here is this, you know, my suffering, it's like that scene in the back of the boat in Jaws, you know, my scar is worse than your scar. I got this one. Remember that scene in Jaws? My suffering has to be the worst. Your suffering can't be as bad as mine. And, and if we go into the world as a Jewish people with this chip on our shoulder that our suffering was worse than everybody else's, even if maybe it was, then I think we lose the ability to teach the message, and I think never again and never forget can happen. Thank you for tonight. I will see you all next week. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.